0: I don't know why I always pick up my microphone, because I have to set it down to clap. (laughs) I'm always like, I'm ready.
1: Oh my god. You want to clap? Yes. Okay, one, two, three. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, yes. It's naughty to ruse your lips.
0: Shake your shoulders, shake your hips and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, indeed. Hi, Deanna. Hey, Han. How you doing? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Jinx.
1: <laughs> Jinx. Uh, I'm good. Yeah. I'm doing good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're recording a podcast, aren't we?
0: We sure are. What's that podcast called?
1: Um, I think it's called Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and yeah. This yeah. is a podcast where we talk about women, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throughout history.
1: Yep. Cool. Yep. Across the the spectrums of gender uh, identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> that and, is very uh, true. Gender expression, gender identity. But mm-hmm. generally along the lines of... Folks who haven't been as talked about in history books that mm, we have become angry to realize we did not learn about. Yeah. That's the basic premise. Yeah. For better or for worse.
1: It's perfectly said, perfectly stated. (laughs) We can always be better, but let's not talk about that. Um, Before we dive into stuff, let's just... Warn everybody that uh, we are having some extreme cases of fireworks in
0: the New York area these in days. Both of our neighborhoods are the mm-hmm. biggest hotspots, apparently. Really? From what I was reading in the New York Times. Yeah. But yeah, no, my neighborhood is one of the neighborhoods experiencing the highest rate of complaints and um, yeah. notices of. Fireworks. So if they go off in the background, you hear like it suddenly sounds like we're podcasting in a war zone. We apologize. We're not in control. We're trying our best to mitigate noise, but
1: Yeah, and it's not gunshots. Um, we in hope. case anyone <laughs> I don't yeah, probably. It probably isn't. Yeah. No. Um but uh yeah, you if that happens, we're just gonna power through. Yes. So You know, there might be a period where we just have some fireworks, but I just wanted to make sure we put that up front just in case it really does happen. Yep. Yep. And, um, yeah, that is just the reality that we are living in these days. Yeah. So, yeah. Trump had his rally in Tulsa.
0: Yeah. The one that they... Which they moved from Juneteenth to the 20th, thankfully.
1: Yes, Exactly. And Fox News, for the whole last week, was bragging and bragging and bragging about the fact that they had millions of people who had requested tickets. And they booked a stadium that was about, uh, it, it could accommodate 19,000 people, I think it said. Mm-hmm. And they were expecting hundreds of thousands of, of people. They had all of these tents and events set up outside the stadium mm-hmm. for overflow. Uh, six thousand people showed up, and you <laughs> from your smile, I think you can you know what what I'm about to say. But the reason for that is that uh, K-pop Twitter and TikTok, you know, teen users got together and basically just fucking trolled Trump so hard by so RSVPing in the hundreds of thousands, and obviously. Probably in the millions, it sounds like, mm-hmm. um, and made made the campaign think that Trump was going to have like you one know. of the
0: biggest crowds he's ever mm-hmm. had. Yeah, and he ended up with six thousand people. I do have to say, and I'm not going to be super clear just in case, but one of my neighbors <laughs> reserved two seats for that rally, <laughs> and she was like, "Ha ha! At yes. least two seats are going to be empty."
1: Uh. I love it. Yeah. Oh God, oh, trolled so hard. That's, so that was it. That was that I was my that thing. I think that was
0: worth mentioning for
1: sure. I th- I think so too, in part because we talked about Juneteenth last week, um, but also because like K-pop uh, fans or stands, as you know, New York Times uh, deigned to call them, K-pop stands have like come through as the sort of random heroes of. Trolling the fuck out of the alt right on
0: social yeah. media. I think I read the same great. piece that you did because it was talking about how they actually overtook the hashtag white lives matter
1: yes. um, section
0: of Twitter. I saw that when they just did posting it. videos uh, like of their favorite K pop groups performing or whatever it is they posted, yes. but they f- spammed the fuck out of that hashtag so it that white beautiful. supremacists would have a harder time finding each other. Which, it was gorgeous. I'm like, I mean, what the hell? Genius.
1: They are genius. <laughs> I am so like proud I'm so and
0: pleased, <laughs> happy with, with Gen Z. They're just so yes. smart.
1: <laughs> oh God, they're so smart. I was there was a, a Twitter thread the other day from a teacher who was talking about her experiences teaching Gen Z, and she was just like, they troll me so hard every day. And at the end of the day, they are super compassionate and they offer to walk me
0: home. And they are they're simultaneously incredibly mean and really (laughs) nice. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes, they are so fucking so witty and so smart, but they are compassionate and caring and giving.
0: And I love it. I actually just read a piece about how. Gen Z is starting to, like, shit on millennials the same way millennials mm-hmm. shit on boomers. Yeah. And I, for the first time, felt like my mother when my mother's like, but I'm not <laughs> like that. Where, but there are things that they talk about that it is me. But I'm like, why are you being so mean? I, our generation doesn't hate yours. We feel a lot of compassion for yours. What did oh we God. do to you? Blame your parents. Your parents are all Gen X. They're like, what the fuck is going on? Why do you hate us? And then I was like, Tiana, calm down. They're just trolling know.
1: you. <laughs> and they're doing it in exactly the right way to yes. make millennials be like, what? <laughs> well, because I mean, millennials but they are, so smart. are very
0: sensitive.
1: <laughs> We are shit on so much. Because they get shit on by boomers, and now they're getting shit on by Jesse. <laughs> we can't win. It's fine. No, I mean,
0: they're so, they're not even wrong half the time. No. I mean, they, they were ugh. like, I'm so sick and tired of dealing with millennials who think that claiming a Harry Potter house is a personality trait. Yes. I'm like, you owned me so hard just now. Ouch but leave us alone we've already had it really hard let us like our things we like but also thank you for for being the trolls we need even if i sometimes fall in that fire well they are clearly the trolls we need i mean look at what they just did millennials could never
1: no millennials (laughs) could never oh so brilliant so anyway that's my mini intro And I had to share.
0: I love it. Thank you for sharing. That was a wonderful conversation to have.
1: (laughs) I thought so. Are you a good witch
0: or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron
1: on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh
0: no! Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the
1: more patrons we get, hopefully, the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron. So that we can start creating that content for you.
0: Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast, and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that?
1: Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash GWBB podcast. Uh,
0: you want to tell me about a lady? I sure do. Um, I felt like jumping off from your incredible job last week talking oh. about the Kambahee River Collective. Um, it's it's completely divergent from that, but I wanted to find someone who was intersectional um mm-hmm. for pride, whose identity and oppression was in a few different ways. And so, but I also want to talk to you about a trailblazer in someone for Pride Month. So, I want to Hell talk yeah. to you this week about Gladys Bentley, who you maybe have heard of. I have a yeah, feeling. Yeah, that
1: name is familiar, but I don't know anything about her.
0: Yay. Damn, she's all right. She is interesting, and I think she's very quintessentially the type of person that I would talk about, and you'll see why. Yes. <laughs> um, so my sources this week, um, there is an amazing piece by Halima Shah from Smithsonian Mag. Um, a what is it called? Obituary by Giovanni Mm. Russinello for the New York Times. Um, Some uh, articles from blackpast.org, a piece by Jessica Gill from womensoundoff.com. And then I found a scan of an article that Gladys actually wrote for Ebony Magazine in the 50s um, that I use a lot, uh, just her talking about her life in her own words. But I found that on queermusicheritage.com.
1: Ooh, cool. Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, dive right in, shall we? Yeah. Okay. Women from all walks of life are held to a different and much higher standard in order to gain the same recognition as the men around them, something we are very familiar with in this podcast. What? It's especially true in the music and entertainment industry. Please listen Mm -hmm. to our episode about Rosetta Tharp and Hazel Scott. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: Good, great episodes anyway. Just mm -hmm. like on their own Rosetta Tharp is maybe it's in my top 10 episode of episodes yeah I adore that episode
0: me too and she's also if you haven't listened to that episode she's also a queer woman clear uh, black queer black woman so really good to learn about um yep but anyway uh the theme of women having to perform to the best of their ability not only in their craft but in every other facet of their lives isn't new to women today the issue has been around for as long as women have had talent and the desire to display it. Despite the odds against them, women have always found ways to shine bright, even when their lights have been systemically sabotaged by the powers that be. Mm-hmm. When it comes to loosening social mores, progress that isn't made in private has often taken place on stage. Listen to our episode Ooh. about Mae West if you want to learn more about that, too. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's a good... Yeah. I love how... Every new episode I've been like researching, I find myself reminded of episodes we've done in the past, and I'm like, "This is so cool." I, I will say, just to like, I'm sorry to to
1: um, interrupt you. No, but it, it is really interesting. The more we, the more women we talk about, the more people we talk about, um, and the broader our knowledge base becomes, the more I can sort of untangle some of the lives of these people that we talk about in, in a way that it has more context I guess mm-hmm. you know like for my person we th- there are a few um, citations from Leslie Feinberg who we talked about last Pride and, uh, and now I know who she was but yeah it's I don't know It just is is really interesting to be able to put all of these puzzle pieces in where I couldn't have before.
0: Yeah, same. In 1934, a midtown Manhattan nightclub called King's Terrace was padlocked by the police after an observer complained of the dirty songs performed there. Oh, no. The after theater club near Broadway was where a troupe of, quote, liberally painted men with effeminate voices and gestures performed behind entertainer Gladys Bentley, who was no less provocative for early 20th century America. Performing (laughs) in a signature white top hat, tuxedo and tails, she sang raunchy songs laced with double entendres that thrilled and scandalized her audiences. Damn. Mm hmm. And while the performance of what an observer called a, quote, masculine-garbed, smut-singing entertainer led to the shutdown of King's (laughs) Terrace, Bentley's powerful voice, fiery energy on the piano, and bold lyrics still made her a star of New York City nightclubs.
1: I see exactly why you picked this person. Yes. (laughs)
0: It's it's very Deanna.
1: (laughs) It's very Deanna. I love it.
0: Her name doesn't have the same recognition as many of her Harlem Renaissance peers, in part because of the risque nature of her performances, which would have kept her out of mainstream venues, newspapers, and history books, even mm-hmm. though she was one of the most well-known and financially successful Black women in the United States in the 1920s and 30s. Oh, damn! Today, though, her story is resurfacing, and she is being seen as a Black woman who is ahead of her time for proudly loving other women, wearing men's clothing, and singing body songs.
1: I... Think I looked into her. I'm sure I had a feeling you might have. I think I did, oh, but it was a long time ago, which is why I was like, I remember, but I don't remember. Yep. Uh, so I don't know this why awesome. I had a sneaking
0: suspicion. I was like, I bet Hannah, like, looked into her very marginally and like maybe put her on a list in the back of her mind.
1: Yes, it's on a. She's on a list, uh, somewhere
0: of people I should look into. But now,
1: yep. Now I got to cross her off.
0: Now you get to learn about her from me.
1: I'm so excited. It's probably better coming from you anyway, just because of your passion for (laughs) the arts. And
0: entertainers who Mm -hmm. uh, uh, break boundaries. Yeah. So Gladys Bentley was born August 12th, 1907. One of the pieces described her as an opulent Leo. And I think that's very, very (laughs) true. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Her parents were Mary Bentley, who was from Trinidad. And George Bentley, who was American, and she was raised in Philadelphia. Um, while most sources list Philadelphia as Gladys's birthplace, during a rare TV appearance in 1958, she told Groucho Marx she was originally from Port of Spain, Trinidad. This is where she was born. Ah, um, interesting. She was the eldest of four siblings and remembered her childhood as an unhappy one. And from an early age, her parents worried about her attraction to women. So I'm going to read. A little significant like portion from her piece about her childhood from ebony magazine yes in her own words quote we know that there are mothers whose yearning for a male child goes ungratified mothers who let their daughters know either openly or insidiously that they are unwanted some children become aggressive and decide to take the reins of their destiny into their own hands that's the way i reacted to being an unwanted child I was the eldest of four children of a poor family. My mother was very bitterly against having a girl. She had prayed and made all preparations for a boy until having a son became an obsession with her. Girls, she was convinced, were fated for trouble. She walked the streets during her pregnancy, staring at little boys at play and told herself, my little boy will be just like that. When they told my mother she had given birth to a girl, she refused to touch me. She wouldn't even nurse me, and my grandmother had to raise me for six months on a bottle before they could persuade my mother to take care of her own baby. Oh, my God. hmm She continued, It seems I was born different. From the time I can remember anything, even when I was toddling, I never wanted a man to touch me. I would even run away from my own father. I acted the same way with my uncles and all the rest of the males who came into my home. I wonder if she's leaving stuff out about why. Yeah, that's just me totally editorializing. Um, I I mean, it is
1: also fair if she's speaking in her own words, and she's speaking in her own words at a time when talking about those things isn't
0: necessarily like cool. Yeah. Well, this article actually, you'll see, it's it's more complex, but I get to that later. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Continue. Uh, When my brothers were born, I began to hate them. As we grew up. I suppose the reason was that they were admired while I was scorned. I fought tooth and nail with my brothers at all times. At the age of 9 and 10, I stole their suits and wore them to school. I soon began to feel more comfortable in boys' clothes than in dresses. I had always been large and stocky and looked much older than my years. I had always believed I was older in mind and intuition than other children. Their company did not appeal to me, and I spent most of my childhood alone but I remember one person who did appeal to me in those love-starved, lonely elementary school days. She was one of my teachers. During recess, I stayed in class and helped her, dusting and arranging things on her desk, cleaning blackboards. Sometimes she would let me comb her long, beautiful hair. In class, I sat for hours watching her and wondering why I was so attracted to her. At night, I dreamed of her. I didn't understand the meaning of those dreams until later. We moved out of the neighborhood and soon after that, mother began to take me from doctor to doctor. An atmosphere of whispering surrounded me in the home. So really unhappy childhood. She clearly knew from an early age that she was attracted to women and didn't like wearing dresses. um, And she was made fun of for being heavier and she was made fun of for wearing masculine clothes. And she didn't even find love and comfort in her own fucking home. Which is where, when children are being assholes, should be the one place you can find support. <laughs> but it wasn't. Yeah. That is so sad. But she poured her frustrations and self-interrogations into music. And her talents as a pianist and songwriter showed themselves quickly. In 1923, at the age of 16, she left home for New York City, where the Harlem Renaissance was already in high gear. And she was quickly absorbed into a vibrant, artistic, and intellectual community.
1: Yeah, that sounds like the perfect place mm-hmm. for her at yeah. the time.
0: Yeah, she immediately began performing at house parties and so-called buffet flats or buffet flats. I think buffet. What is? Did you look up what that is? Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. I only ask because half the time when you ask me questions, I didn't look up the answer.
0: <laughs> These so. were basically house parties that were illicit clubs in people's brownstone homes um, wow. Which offered music, alcohol, gambling, and usually sex workers for hire were there. Wow. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So she would start performing at house parties where people would like raise money for rent and other causes just by charging people to come in and drink their booze and oh. receive their entertainment.
1: Do you think they were called buffet parties because there was like a buffet
0: of things to do? Smorgasbord. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of of things to eat, people to eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yes, that. <laughs> but it was at the Clam House, Harlem's most popular gay-friendly speakeasy on 133rd Street because remember, Prohibition. The Clam House? The Clam House. Oh. <laughs> Nicknamed Swing Street for its countless underground clubs was where Gladys Bentley established herself as the main attraction. Hmm. So her reputation took off. The Clam House became the talk of Harlem, attracting uptown bigwigs as well as celebrities from all over the city. Um, her performances inspired characters in at least three novels based on Harlem's Renaissance nightlife. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you know which There's some. writers? I'll get to them. Okay. okay. Um, it's no surprise that Gladys moved to Harlem. As someone who wrote about feeling attracted to women and being comfortable in men's clothes from an early age, she likely would have found more acceptance in a community that was home to other sexually fluid entertainers. Historian yeah. Henry Louis Gates Jr. even described the Harlem Renaissance as being surely as gay as it was black. Oh, yes. I like that. Mm hmm. Her rise to fame demonstrated how liberated the prohibition culture of the Harlem Renaissance had become and how welcoming the blues tradition could be to gay expression. She often confronted male entitlement and sexual abuse in her lyrics and declared her own sexual independence. This was, in fact, the continuation of a tradition begun by other singers of the early 20th century, particularly Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, Ethel Waters and Lucille Bogan, who were some of the most vocal musician critics of patriarchy of their time. Mm, mm, mm. yes on a 1928 recording of her worried blues Gladys sang what made you men folk treat us women like you do I don't want no man that I gotta give my money to (laughs) between lines she improvised vocal fills uncannily mimicking a trumpet and hitting notes spot on on how much can I stand from later that year she depicted an abusive relationship with a sense of wry humanity Said I was an angel, he was bound to treat me right. Who in the devil ever heard of angels that get beat up every night? How much of that Ooh. dog can I stand? Ooh. hmm Damn. According to Jim Wilson, who is the author of the book Bull Daggers, Pansies, and Chocolate Babies, Performance, Race, and Sexuality in the Harlem Renaissance, Harlem was also a community that the police turned a blind eye to during the Prohibition era. Oh, Pe- interesting. People, many of whom were white, seeking entertainment and covert access to alcohol, crowded oh. into Harlem nightclubs, speakeasies, and parties. Yeah. I feel like we talked about that yeah. at one point. Yeah.
1: Which was that with was that with Hazel Scott? I think so,
0: because her husband was a representative and that's where she got her start too. Um It was
1: one of it was one of our early ones, but yeah, I feel yeah. like we definitely yeah. Discussed that. How white people were kind of like, "Ooh, we want to be cool and partake of the white of the people black have culture. not
0: changed one <laughs> iota. No, not a bit. Not a bit. Um, so while Harlem was home to black Americans facing the challenges of the Great Depression, it also became a destination for pleasure seekers who were eager to let loose of their bourgeois attitudes and experiment both sexually and socially. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she quickly made a name for herself as somebody who sang ribald songs. Ribald, ribald, raunchy songs.
1: Yeah, ribald or ribald. Mm-hmm. I think, feel like I've heard it both ways.
0: um Says Maybe I just heard it two wrong ways. Yeah. She would take popular songs of the day and put the filthiest lyrics possible in. She took the songs Sweet Alice Blue Gown and Georgia Brown and combined them, and it became a song about anal sex. Oh, yes, it did. <laughs> all right so Gladys Bentley was obviously not the first performer to sing raunchy music but she was still breaking barriers at the time because she was pushing boundaries of public taste in a way that which have been which would have been much more um easy and suitable for men to do like women weren't doing it as frequently and now was she wearing her
1: suits at this time was she yeah that's so it's fascinating that like she felt empowered and I assume like audiences sort of helped to empower her to do that Mm -hmm. probably in part because of that character she was or at least character quote unquote that she was playing yeah stage persona Um, yeah because I feel like if she'd been wearing a dress regardless of, of who she believed herself to be or how she felt on the inside it would have been a different story yeah right
0: well, Maybe? that was part of the draw for her as a performer. Yeah. Um, so going back just a, a skosh to talking about her transition from house parties to nightclubs, okay. one of her first opportunities, um, that which she wrote about in the Ebony Magazine piece, um, she said soon after arriving in Harlem, she auditioned at the Madhouse, which is a venue on 133rd Street, which we were kind of Oh, yeah, under, the Swing yeah. Street? hmm which was in need of a pianist. Here's from the article, quote, but they want a boy, my friend said. (laughs) Well, there's no better time for them to start using a girl, I replied. At the madhouse, the boss was reluctant to give me a chance, but I finally convinced him. My hands fairly flew over the keys. When I had finished my first number, the burst of applause was terrific. One of the white customers walked over, handed me a $5 bill and said, please play something else. We don't care what it is. Just play. You're terrific. Oh, my God. The boss came over. Play as long as you like, he said. When you're finished, come to my office. I continued for two hours, then went to hear my fate, and I was offered $35 a week and began work right on the spot.
1: Damn. And what do you know, like, what $35 a week was at the time?
0: I mean, I think it was probably pretty respectable, but it quickly, yeah. it quickly went up as she became more famous. Um, and she
1: got tips and shit, I assume, and yes, like yes, yeah,
0: wealthy oh, white man. people were coming in the droves and handing her tips. Um, Fuck Yes, so her audience, like you were just mentioning, was as fascinated by her style as it was mm-hmm. by her music. Mm-hmm. She says, "For the customers of the club, one of the unique things about my act was the way I dressed." I wore immaculate, full white dress shirts with stiff collars, small bow ties and shirts, Oxford, um, Oxford's short Eton jackets, and my hair cut straight back.
1: Oh, I bet she was so hot.
0: You'll, I'll, I'll show you a picture.
1: Uh, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've, I can picture her just from my, the
0: very bare research I've done. But she wasn't exactly doing drag because she still had on a full face and makeup right. and like dark lipstick. But from what I could see in the photos, I don't know if that's representative of every time she was on stage, but pictures of her, she had, like, very, like, femme face, but like, you know, masculine dress. Um, As a singer, she became known for a deep growling voice and a trumpet-like scat, which we've talked Mm -hmm. about. As a performer, she was advertised by event promoters as a male impersonator, and she filled venues with loud, rowdy performances. When not accompanying herself with dazzling piano, the mightily built singer often swept through the audience where she would boldly and unabashedly flirt with women in the audience. Yes. <laughs> Langston Hughes was one of the per- people to write about her in a book. Mm-hmm. He praised Bentley as, quote, an amazing exhibition of musical energy, a large, dark, masculine lady whose feet pounded the floor while her fingers pounded the keyboard, a perfect piece of African sculpture animated by her own rhythm. Wow. In a letter, Harlem socialite Harold Jackman wrote, quote, when Gladys sings St. James Infirmary, it makes you weep your heart out. Oh, God. As her star rose, she began playing larger Harlem venues, like the Cotton Club and the iconic gay speakeasy, The Clam House, which we referenced. Um, Her act drew white patrons from outside of Harlem, including writer and photographer Carl Van Vechten, who based a fictional blues singer in one of his novels off of her, writing that when, quote, she pounds the piano, the dawn comes up like thunder. Oh. The way she's described by these writers is so <laughs> insane. <laughs> like, it's so beautifully put. And I can just, it's I literally mythological. Can see it. Yes.
1: Yeah. You can She is a, a figure of myth. I mean, it yes. is. Yes. It's crazy. But also, well, that's, I guess that's another thing to unpack on a different day. But um, really, really fascinating. In
0: the... 20s. I'm looking up how much $35 was in the 20s. <laughs> um, $35 in 1920 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $450. Sorry, motorcycles. Okay.
1: So every month, that's almost
0: um, $2,000. Yeah, which I think back, you know, I mean, it, in a sense, it probably get, get, get you a nice, <laughs> you know, it's still it's kind of, it's not great, but I think inflation like cost of living has changed anyway. Um, it is, I mean, it's still honestly two thousand dollars a month is still what a lot
1: of people make, like yeah. in their regular jobs. Yeah, it is still uh, it is still a living, in some places.
0: Yeah, Crazy. but so as her star rose, her thirty five dollar a week salary jumped to one hundred twenty five dollars a week. Oh, shit. And that was not including many generous tips nightly from wealthy patrons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Soon, according to her own account, she was living in an expensive Park Avenue apartment, complete with servants and a beautiful car. Good for her. Her success, of course, extended beyond New York because she toured the country and wowed audiences around the country at the same time. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Her fame was a product of being both a gifted singer and an adept provocateur, uh, as would be implied. Right. Her shocking lyrics were accompanied by gossip column stories that readers would have found equally shocking. (laughs) Gladys Bentley had told a gossip columnist that she had just gotten married. The gossip columnist asked, well, who's the man? And she scoffed and said, man, it's a woman. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) This uh, rumored marriage had all the makings of an early 20th century scandal. Gladys claimed that not only was it a same sex civil ceremony, but the union was between herself and a white woman. Really? Mm -hmm. hmm. While Wilson, the historian, says there's no record of that union taking place, the story is still a glimpse into Gladys's unapologetic openness about her sexual orientation and her acute understanding of the power of shock value. Yes. I was going to say, I wonder how
1: many tickets she sold once that
0: story came out. Yes. He said one of the most frustrating and joyous things about Gladys Bentley was she was constantly inventing herself. Oftentimes (laughs) when she mentioned something about her personal life, you had to take it with a grain of salt and not necessarily take it for truth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, shit. I don't know. I feel like that's just true of so many people who are who recognize that everything is against them in terms of getting what they want and so you build you build something that will get you what you want mhm and you have to keep that up like that doesn't you can't there's never a point where you don't get to where you don't have to hold that that facade up anymore right and clearly she took joy in it so fucking why not you know yeah. like f- yeah but yeah. still i can see i can see why That was a tactic she employed. Yes,
0: exactly. Um, And also, like, reading about how all of this took place, for the most part, during Prohibition made me think about your episode about the temperance movement and all that, Mm -hmm. and New York socialites and all that, and jazz. Uh, Listen to that episode.
1: God, it's (laughs) amazing to, like, know so many more things than we used to know.
0: (laughs) This is such a meta commentary. (laughs) I know. Oh, Um, God, I love it. So, taking it down a notch, sadly, by the late 1930s, the Harlem Renaissance and Gladys Bentley, along with it, had lost a lot of their allure. Um, Because, of course, during Prohibition, lines blurred between mainstream nightlife and more illicit forms of entertainment, because when it's all illegal, it's all, who cares? Yeah, it's all game. (laughs) But over the course of the 30s, as we know, the 18th Amendment was repealed, and the country found itself in the Depression. So tolerance started waning. Yeah, Um, even as Gladys grew more popular, her celebrity became less acceptable and performing south Mm -hmm. of Harlem became more difficult Uh, in 1934. As we mentioned in opening a run at the King's Terrace on 52nd Street was cut short under pressure from the police. But in 1937, Gladys left New York for L.A., where she continued recording music, touring and performing in upscale upscale supper clubs and bars. But her act was a toned down version of what it was at the height of her fame in New York. Um, she became a leading entertainer in Los Angeles and in the San Francisco Bay Area, though sometimes she had to wear skirts on stage to appease club owners. Um, she was Still. less restricted at Mona's 440 Club, which was the first lesbian bar in San Francisco and became her home base for a while. Well, well, well. Yeah. Um, by the 1950s, Gladys Bentley was approaching middle age. Um, the roaring 20s of her youth and the Harlem Renaissance community that flirted with modernism was now a thing of the past. Hmm. Sadly, uh, the 1950s was a crazy conservative era, as we know. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. <clears throat> I would love to read some, like, real in-depth scholarship about the the difference between the 20s. Besi- you know, besides just temperance or um, prohibition and, you know... Uh, the world war world war one and all of that like I, I would love to really understand why why we became so fucking conservative in the 40s and 50s and because that has led into where we are today yes in a big way there was so and much
0: progress toward a uh, a uh, you know moving civil rights forward towards moving for for many different communities and we yeah not we're all, all intersectional of them, but but, like like you know being gay and you know gender non-conformity and um you know feminism were all on yeah. the rise then and then it was like tamp the fuck down and yeah. we've been working since the 60s again yeah <laughs> and then got tamped yeah. down in the 80s like it's crazy The 1950s were even more conservative than the early part of the 20th century. We see a real change uh, so that somebody who identified as lesbian or gay is considered a national menace right up there with being a communist, which is what Wilson says. Um, So Gladys Bentley abandoned that and seemed to want to restart her career as a more traditional black female performer. She doesn't want to get blacklisted. Yeah. Or have to go to court. I get it. So back to that Ebony article piece. She wrote it in 1952. And the article is entitled, I am a woman again. And in the article. Yeah. In the article, she described the life of a glamorous performer who silently struggled with herself. For many years, I lived in a personal hell. She wrote. Like a great number of lost souls, I inhabited that half shadow no man's land, which exists between the boundaries of the two sexes, which feels very relatable. Yeah. (laughs) After a lifetime of loneliness, she wrote that she had undergone medical treatment that awakened her womanliness, which I think she was just getting estrogen injections. Um, Oh, my God. She claimed to have married twice, though Wilson says that one of the men denied ever having been married to her. Um, The article was accompanied with photos of Gladys Bentley wearing a matronly white house dress and performing the role of homemaker, preparing meals, making the bed for her husband, wearing a dress and flowers in her hair. In later years, her acclaimed article at the time would receive backlash from critics as she seemed to denounce many of the labels that she appeared to pioneer throughout her years as a gender nonconforming performer. She was known by most as an out and proud lesbian Yet in her profile, she seems to have been cured of her queer ways and, quote, found happiness in love after medical treatment to correct her strange affliction. However, it's very important to note the context and year that the article was published. Um,
1: 100%.
0: Assistant professor of minority studies and author Regina V. Jones explains in an essay... Obviously, that during the McCarthy area, lesbian women and gay men were outlawed and lost their jobs. Consequently, when their sexuality became public knowledge and her sexuality was already incredibly public.
1: Right. So she the- was like in a really tough position. She wasn't like nobody had secretly outed her or was whispering about her to her
0: job. She outed herself. It was like, like it was common knowledge, public knowledge. And she was already when she moved to California, being forced to wear skirts on stage and all this stuff as that sort of conservative wave came through. Um, So Regina Jones speculates that the politics of the time forced Gladys back in the closet and her ebony confessional was a means to appease the black middle-class bourgeois the magazine catered to. No. She thinks that her marriage was a lavender marriage Mm. and that um, she was wearing dresses again as a way to preserve her career and her safety. You know Um,
1: what? Yes. Preserve
0: your safety. That is the paramount blame a person for doing that. Absolutely not. not. You can only go so far with like uh, getting mad at someone for that. Um, Yeah. Wilson also says that Bentley, who was aging and no stranger to reinvention, was likely making deft use of the press. I like to believe that Gladys Bentley had her thumb on the pulse of the time. She knew it was popular, what she could do, and what people would pay to see. Her, true. Yes. So true. Yes. Um, so when I first started researching her and I found that piece, I was like, oh, shit, this is a sad end. But then I read, you know, other articles that were like, actually, this is probably <laughs> just a result of the era. And sh- there's because no, like, there's obviously no way that that's accurate. You can't cure the gay. <laughs> like, no. that's not even no. if you have estrogen injections, you're not going to stop being gay. But the um, secret is only gay people know that. Yeah. True. So, yeah. You know. um, so her career continued after that point, though briefly. Um, in 1958, she appeared on Groucho Marx's game show, You Bet Your Life. Uh, She took a seat at the piano on the set and performed a song that showed a vocal range and confidence that had not diminished since her days in Harlem. In
1: 1960,
0: after a lifetime as a popular entertainer and a woman who lived on the fringes in a world that wasn't ready to accept her, Gladys Bentley succumbed to pneumonia. She had been living in California with her mother and was waiting to be ordained as a minister in the Temple of Love in Christ Uh, Incorporated. Fascinating. kind of cool. So obviously, today she's being rediscovered for the same reason that her story was obscured during her youth. Right. Um, Obviously, we can't say for certain how exactly Gladys Bentley felt, especially at the end of her life, about her sexuality and her gender. But it is clear that she challenged norms and did what she could to feed her soul. In a world where the intersections of her identity Ah. Ah. made it more than difficult to navigate and find happiness... Uh, She still left a legacy of excellent music, performanceship, and style. Her talent and love for music opened up doors that may not have been accessible to those with similar realities, but the fact that she gained such recognition hopefully inspired and motivated those who identified with her to keep pushing and keep going. Gladys Bentley should be remembered for being a gender outlaw, says Wilson. She was just defiant in who she was. For gender and sexuality studies today, she shows performance of gender. Her music can be found on most streaming platforms, and you would be doing yourself a huge disservice by not exploring it. That is a great tidbit. I did not know that. Yes, I was listening Amazing. to okay. some of her music as I was researching, and that um, note about her having a trumpet-like impersonation—like she could scat like a trumpet—and it sounds. I was going to ask so you about that. Cool. So that's Gladys that. Bentley, gender ah! non-conforming black American lesbian artist and performer. And and like Harlem Renaissance performer. I mean,
1: because mm-hmm. that is an era that white people don't know that much about and is so fascinating. It is so like captivating. What, mm-hmm. what went on in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. Like it's freaking beautiful and we really don't I don't know. White people don't necessarily bother themselves with it mm-hmm. um i don't know that i learned about it too
0: too much it might have been Mystery mentioned Glass. as a footnote
1: yeah it's, but know, it's
0: just fucking amazing came out of it so you know <laughs>
1: uh, and yeah so i really love that you i really love that you talked about her and her contribution to all of that
0: but yeah thank so you you're welcome thank you for inspiring me Last oh week, but to find, you know, a particular intersectional type of person to talk about.
1: Yeah, I feel like the idea that we are an intersectional feminist podcast is, has always sort of been implied by For us. Sure.
0: Um, I would hope. Otherwise, I we're given hope. the wrong impression.
1: I think we're getting the reviews that <laughs> that express that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think every now and then it is good to sort of say it out loud and talk about what intersectionality actually is and, like, mm-hmm. how it's not just a buzzword. It actually mm-hmm. means something very specific. Yeah. And um, and that there are people who embody what it means and why, mm-hmm. why we tout intersectional feminism today. Um, so, yeah, I just... I appreciate that you were inspired and um, that that's what you took from it. So thank you. You're welcome.
0: Do you want me to give you some on this day? Yes, please. June 24th, 1374. Ooh. A sudden outbreak of St. John's dance causes people in the streets of Aachen, Germany to experience hallucinations and begin to jump and twitch uncontrollably until they collapse from exhaustion. Apparently, this was a thing that happened in, the, like, Middle Ages, where, <laughs> where whole towns of people would be overcome with the uncontrollable urge to dance and flail until they all collapsed. Was this a bread mold thing? Could what? be. Could be. I know there's an episode of lore about it. So oh I was like, oh, God. this is what he was talking about.
1: Okay. Yeah. Wow. Saint all right. John's June Dance is
0: what the affliction is called. <clears throat> what? Yeah.
1: Holy uh, shit.
0: Yeah. Uh, 1821, jumping ahead quite a ways, the Battle of Carabobo takes place, which is the decisive battle in the War of Independence of Venezuela from Spain. Whoa. All right. Which I know nothing about.
1: No, but I, but I think that didn't pretty much all of South America have to sort of extricate itself from spain
0: you were asking the wrong person but i would venture a guess as to say that sounds right
1: i feel like they all have like you know independence from spain wars and or you know Mm -hmm. dates that sort of commemorate that um event for for each each of them yeah anyway (laughs) that was my super uneducated way of
0: saying like that Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. <laughs> you know, yeah, thank you. Uh, 1916, Mary Pickford becomes the first female film star to sign a million-dollar contract.
1: Mary Pickford! Mm-hmm. I love Mary Pickford.
0: This one I picked for you. Uh, 1938, pieces of a meteorite land near Chicora, Pennsylvania. The meteorite <gasps> is estimated to have weighed 450 metric tons when it hit <gasps> Earth's atmosphere and exploded. <gasps> Ooh! wait, what year? 1938. Yeah, that is so cool. In Pennsylvania, they found pieces of a meteorite.
1: Uh, That is fucking awesome.
0: 1943. This one seems on the nose for right now. Um, U.S. military police attempt to arrest a black soldier in Bamber Ridge, Bamber Bridge, England, sparking the Battle of Bamber Bridge mutiny that left one dead and seven wounded so kind of the Cliff's cliffs nose version it's apparently it happened days after the 1943 Detroit race riot so I'm sure these white MPs probably had some feelings about it Ugh. and um, they apparently decided that they wanted to harass a black soldier who was at a pub drinking with his friends because he wasn't quote appropriately dressed and didn't have Good the Lord. like the correct pass to be away from his unit or some shit mm-hmm. Um. yeah so it was like a fight that ensued all night apparently like Uh, one of the um men in charge of the black regiment like made peace and then the white soldiers were mp soldiers mp were doing like they were doing some shitty things as they left so someone threw a bottle and then like more mps showed up with machine guns and then the black soldiers went and raided a nearby like place that had rifles and it was like a standoff anyway oh my god it sounds like it was nuts and um a court martial convicted 32 soldiers of mutiny and related oh, crimes, Jesus but he Christ. at the in 1943 this is kind of incredible. Blamed poor leadership and racist attitudes of the MPs for causing it. No,
1: yeah, that I can't even believe that.
0: Well, it's it's Britain. Not that Britain doesn't have its own fucking problems with racism because it has a ton, but yes, sometimes they have been more progressive in certain ways than America. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. Wow. Nineteen wow.
0: forty-seven. This one also for you, kinda. This is for me too. <laughs> Kenneth Arnold makes the first widely reported UFO sighting near Mount Rainier, ah. Washington.
1: <laughs> I love that I've become so predictable, um,
0: girl. But me too. I love
1: that it's amazing. <laughs> it's the best. Okay, so <clears throat> nineteen
0: seventy-three. This one I'm going to delve into a little bit more. Not Uh-oh. super nice,
1: but... Uh-oh, 73, I recognize, as a not-so-nice year.
0: Yeah, um, it is pride-related, so I felt it was important to do this one justice. Or a little bit. Um, yeah, all right. The upstairs lounge arson attack takes place at a gay bar located on the second floor of a three-story building uh, in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Oh. 32 people die as a result of fire <gasps> or smoke inhalation. Uh, up until the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting, it was the deadliest known attack on a gay club in U.S. history. Oh. Um, so, yeah, on Sunday, June 24th, 1973, which was the final day of Pride, the regular beer bust was taking place at the club. Members of the Metropolitan Community Church, a pro LGBT Protestant denomination, were there after service. Uh, the MCC was the United States' uh, first gay church, and it was founded in L.A. in 1968. The club hosted free beer and dinner for 125 patrons. At the time of the fire, some 60 people were listening to pianist David Gary perform and discuss an upcoming fundraiser for the local crippled children's hospital. Oh,
1: my fucking God.
0: Yep. At 7.56 p.m., a buzzer from downstairs sounded and bartender Buddy Rasmussen, an Air Force veteran, asked Luther Boggs to answer the door, anticipating a taxi cab driver. There's those fireworks. (laughs) Yeah, fireworks. I know. Um, Boggs opened the door uh, to find the front staircase engulfed in flames, along with the smell of lighter fluid. Um, Rasmussen immediately led some 20 patrons out of the back exit to the roof, where this group could access a neighboring building's roof and climb down to the ground floor. Others saw the floor to ceiling windows as the most promising means of escape, despite the fact there were safety bars on the windows with a 14 inch gap between them to prevent dancers from breaking through the glass. Uh, Several people did manage to squeeze through, some still burning when they reached the ground below. Luther Boggs was one who came through the window in flames after pushing his female friend through the gap. The flames were put out by the owner of a neighboring bar, but his injuries were too severe to survive. Uh, Reverend Bill Larson of the MCC removed an air conditioning unit from the bottom of one of the floor to ceiling windows and was attempting to get out when the upper pane of glass fell on top of him, uh, pinning him to the window frame, half in the building and half out. Obviously he did not survive. Oh my um, God. MCC assistant pastor, George Mitchell managed to escape, but returned in an attempt to rescue his partner. They considered themselves married based on a civil ceremony they had had two years prior. Uh, his partner was named Louis Horace Broussard or Louis Horace Broussard, probably Louis because it was New Orleans. Um, they both died in the fire. Their remains found clinging to each other. Um, Mitchell's children were visiting from out of town and watched the same movie seven times as they waited for their father's return. Eventually, a friend took them to the airport and sent them home to their mother without telling them what happened to their father and his partner. Firefighters stationed two blocks away found themselves blocked by cars and pedestrians. One fire truck tried to maneuver on the sidewalk, but crashed into a taxi. They arrived to find bark patrons struggling against the security bars and quickly brought the fire under control. 28 people died at the scene of the 16 minute fire and one died en route to the hospital. Another suffered another 18 suffered injuries of whom three died. And it the case was closed in like 1980 and they never had anyone charged with it. They had a suspect who was um, like a local hustler who I, he appeared to have a like a confrontation with someone in the bar and left angry and he was seen about 10 to 20 minutes before. But I mean, the overall consensus, not that I necessarily buy this is true, is that it wasn't like a hate motivated attack. It was like a, a guy who was pissed off. Um well but that
1: makes everything so much easier. It makes it to, so much like, better. Like it makes the paperwork
0: so much easier to do yeah. if it's like Yeah. But it was Just some guy. I'd heard about Whatever. that fire before and I didn't realize it was going to come up on this day. So That is um, crazy. Oh my god. You know, just take a moment Oof. today to think about those people who died during Pride. Pride. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think it is a good it's a good reminder that pride is not just about like being proud of your identity um but it is about remembering those who didn't have that ability
0: luxury who
1: (laughs) yeah that luxury um and it is about remembering those who died and or fought for those same rights and didn't get them yes um so yeah i think that's That is a good way to put that. Mm -hmm. Just uh, taking a moment to remember and think about people who have lost their lives.
0: Yes. I've got Um, a couple more. (laughs) I didn't want to end on that one. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm here. Um, Though they're not necessarily light, but they're not as dark as that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 2004 in New York, capital punishment is declared unconstitutional. Wow. Okay. Didn't know that.
1: I didn't Um, know
0: that. And June 24th, uh, 2012, marks the death of Lonesome George, which was the last known individual of uh, a particular subspecies of the Galapagos tortoise that I cannot pronounce. Ah. Um, He had hatched around 1910, which meant he was 101 or 102 when he died.
1: Oh, my God. And he
0: was Lonesome George because he was the last of his kind.
1: Oh. Oh. oh, you century-year-old turtle. <laughs> century-year-old? Century-old turtle. Yeah. Um, Turtles, man. I know. There are some turtles that live to be four fucking ever old they are so
0: old and learning about those sharks that they found like <gasps> in like yes. Scandinavian waters I think that they were like oh yeah this shark is like almost 500 years old and it's like I'm sorry <laughs> excuse me <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't what? cannot
1: compute I don't
0: this is a dinosaur you mean what Yes, <laughs> exactly exactly oh
1: my god but oh lonesome George poor baby.
0: I know. So that one's not happy, but it's a little less like heavy.
1: Yeah. It's not arson at a gay club. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That's, that's
0: a lot of the on this day. Um, wow. There was a lot more, but I, this is what I narrowed it down to.
1: Dude, thank Just you. Just think
0: about that St. John's dance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I hope it wasn't like induced by some sort of illness or something i I don't know i want to know now it's
0: partly uh one of the the guesses is ergot which is that same bread mold that that they think caused the salem witch trials and which i learned recently research of ergot is what led to the creation of lsd oh
1: yeah 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 that dude thank you this week (laughs) oh man that's amazing and i think you are technically um the last episode of pride i will be doing an episode that is pride related because mine is gonna be um on july 1st but we also missed a week so and we also missed a week so we're kind of due um but yeah you are technically like ending out june you're technically ending out pride month so um awesome you are fabulous thank you and i have One Pride Month related thing that I'm excited about. Yay, I was just about to ask you. (laughs) And that is that there are, and probably everybody who listens to this already knows, but in case you don't, there are new episodes of Queer Eye on Netflix. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. You mean the cry Um, show? The 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 crying (laughs) show, the show where you cry, um, the show where I definitely cried every single episode. Um, But I finished it all because it was so good. Um, I just feel like whoever it is who picks their heroes is a genius. Yeah. Because they manage to, they just manage to pick people every single time who have something specific to teach every type of person who might be watching. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And and it is different every single time, and it is so compassionate and lovely that I I'm stunned. Honestly, like so we are we are recording on Father's Day, um, ironically because we're both part of the Dead Dad's Club, and uh, I think about every time I watch the show, how much my dad could have used this show. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and he did not live to see it. um, Premiere. He didn't live to see this particular, uh, you know, series, this Mm. part of the series premiere. Um, But I really, really hope there are men like him who are watching and taking something really valuable from it because so much of it is about teaching cisgender men that they don't need to participate in a toxic patriarchal system Mm -hmm. and that it's okay to talk about your feelings and it's okay to be who you are. And it's also, so much of it is about teaching queer people Mm -hmm. that it's okay to be queer and it's okay to be queer in your own way and to come out in your own time and to be your own person. Yeah. You don't have to be queer in the specific ways that like so many rigid queer communities try and set out for people. Mhm. Um so, you know,
0: imagine I just multifaceted people <laughs> of all types.
1: What? <laughs> Who? When? How? Why? But yeah, so I I just love that show. Be prepared to cry, obviously, as Deanna just said. Um, but that they have new episodes. They have, I think, ten new episodes. So um, those are worth watching. And I have one more. Yes. Thing that I'm excited about that I just discovered literally ten minutes before you called. But I want to mention her because I can't. I I don't know. Um, I haven't listened to too much of this podcast, but I'm excited to start listening. And that's what this is about, you know, being excited about things. Absolutely. Um, so Moya McTeer is a, an astrophysicist and folklorist. Whoa. Who, yeah. The combination is insanely um, appealing to me. <laughs> no um, kidding. kidding. <laughs> It's like so perfect for me, it's upsetting. Um, But she is a podcaster and a YouTuber, and her podcast is called Exolore, E-X-O-L-O-R-E. And she basically talks about, she interviews expert guests, so other scientists, um, about world building. And together, every week, they sit down and they talk about what they think life might be like on a different alien planet every week
0: uh, I want to listen to this I know
1: it <laughs> is oh my god it's so brilliant because it is it's the perfect intersection of storytelling and, and astrophysics for me it is world building but in a, an informed way by people who are like super excited about the science and understand the science and can engage with one another about the science right and yeah,
0: so I am very excited to start listening to that. So and um, is it is it yeah. stuff that's like is instead of where it would just be like a sci fi writer who's like, this is an alien planet where they all have like big, large black holes for eyes and wear silver suits. And instead, it's more like, <laughs> yeah. actually, if you have more of a hydrogen based atmosphere, this is what your body might be like. And what yes, what you might look like and the things you might yeah. need. And well exactly.
1: Yeah, like if, like, if we're looking at Earth-like planets, like, what about them is Earth-like and what about them isn't,
0: and... And how would that affect life on that planet? Yeah. Ooh.
1: I don't know. It just sounds really fucking cool, but she is, um, yeah, she is on Patreon also, and on Twitter, and, yeah, I have been... so actually at this very moment that we are recording so it might not necessarily be a thing when this episode airs but um, I think the hashtag is black in astro okay. I think that's the hashtag but they are its black scientists especially black astrophysicists who are trying to make that hashtag trend Nice. Um, because there are so many amazing and brilliant black women scientists who are specifically in astrophysics who are like I'm here. I'm amazing. I'm awesome. So I found Moya through um, that hashtag, and I'm excited to go listen. So yeah, that's nice. the other thing. That's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, wow. And All on right. On that note, I, f- I feel, like, I feel we, like this is a
0: long episode.
1: I feel like it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I think it's about as long as we tend to okay. tend to get um, tend to
0: ramble on for
1: yeah but we can wrap it up um uh yeah you can find us on social media at gwbb podcast as usual you can find us on patreon.com slash gwbb podcast and ko ko dash fi.com which is just a one-time donation situation situation Um, And uh, we're at GWBB Podcast there as well. And uh, yeah, we are going to come back to you next week with more amazing people. And in the meantime, I hope you if you are in a city that is being inundated with fireworks, I hope you get some sleep. And (laughs) if not, hopefully you are able to at least absorb the amazingness we're bringing to you. Uh, now and next week. So until next time, peace out, witches. Bye bye. Bye. See you later. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you
0: so much for listening. We really appreciate it.
1: Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif, me, you, and you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson.
0: And we're produced by Benjamin Garst.
1: Um, You can find us on iTunes. Stitcher,
0: Spotify, Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us
1: running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com.
0: podcast, <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content and it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast and it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out if you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to
1: help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe All of the, All of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us yeah word of mouth also good yeah
0: (laughs) our website is gwbbpodcast.com you can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron good witches bad bitches is powered by moon Moon Bounce. bounce